Welcome to the Covenant People's Ministry. Jesus once told Satan that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We invite you to study the scriptures with us to learn about the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our pastor is Mr. Jeremy Visser from Brooks, Georgia. You can contact us with your questions and comments at covenantpeoplesministry.org or simply write to Covenant People's Ministry, Post Office Box 256, Brooks, Georgia 30205. If you desire, you can also follow us on YouTube and Twitter. We would like to hear from you, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that His will will continue to reign upon us all. Once again, welcome to the Covenant People's Ministry, and here is Pastor Visser with our next Bible study. We're going to be wrapping up and finalizing our series into the Syriac Infancy Gospel. And my friends, this is actually quite a good thing. Because the Syriac Infancy Gospel, at least as a series, was begun in October of 2015. And for the month of October, we released over eight segments pertaining to this book of Infancy 1. And over the last six months, we have been adding to and padding this particular series, which leads us up to the final part this Wednesday evening, being part 14 in the Syriac Infancy Gospel, and there has been good and bad within this series. In fact, it has been quite a challenge to preach this, because a majority of what is found within the middle of the Syriac, or Arabic, Infancy Gospel, deals mostly with the oral traditions of the Israelites that lived within the city of Jerusalem. And so, in the middle of this series is where you will find a majority of those things that do not align with the Word of God, albeit most of them do. Now, fortunately for this final segment, we're technically wrapping up Infancy 1 and its additions to the book of Infancy 2. And Infancy 2 is attributed to Doubting Thomas. Therefore, what we're reading here and finishing up is what Thomas wrote within Infancy 2. But have no fear. Because what we're going to be dealing with in the final two chapters, that is chapter 21 and 22, is more a background into what happened to the youthful Yahshua when he was left within the temple during the Passover weekend. So there truly is no discrepancies here. And I'm going to prove that to you as we go through it. But before we begin that, I do want to thank my friend in Finland. I want to thank my friend Trucker Troy and the other men and women that have remembered me this particular month and hopefully in the next few weeks will continue to remember me because it is my intention to go into an all-new series, that is, if I have a bit of stability within my life. And we have naturally reduced those three possibilities of a future series to the book of Galatians, the Gospel of Matthew, or the Gnostic book of Nicodemus, which is a little bit longer than Infancy 2. So this is undecided as to what the next series will be, if we even embark on a whole new series. So for those of you who listen and enjoy these broadcasts, if you have a preference between Matthew, Galatians, or Nicodemus, simply email us and let us know, and 
perhaps will do the one that you desire. So without further ado, let's pick back up our study in the 21st chapter of Infancy 1, here in the Syriac Infancy Gospel. In verse 1 we read, When he was twelve years old, they brought him to Jerusalem to the feast. And when the feast was over, they returned. Now notice, if you're not familiar with the New Testament, you may not know who is being discussed here in this terminology, they. But they, of course, is Joseph and Mary. Now, if you were to begin chapter 21, verse 1, and just start reading, you would not truly understand who it is that's being referenced here. That is, unless you're familiar with the gospel according to Luke. But we must remember that chapter 20 ended on the note in verse 16. Joseph said to St. Mary, Henceforth we will not allow him to go out of the house, for everyone who displeases him is killed. And if you remember, that was the main theme of part 13, that Yahshua will kill those that displease him during his second advent. And so, when he, Jesus the Christ, was 12 years old, they, Joseph and St. Mary, brought him to Jerusalem to the feast. Notice they don't say what feast this is, they just say the feast, because there is one feast that is above all, and uber allis, and of course, that would be the Passover. But notice also that Jesus the Christ is 12 years old. Again, 12 denoting the number of governmental perfection. And you will see as we go through this and conclude the book, that there is a point that Jesus Christ will conceal his miracles. So what the author wants you to know is that this leads up to what we read about in the gospel according to Luke. And then so ends, meaning that there is, once again, a gap in Jesus' childhood. Now, this is the oldest point that we read about Yahshua, and we'll confirm this momentarily in the King James Version of the Bible. As a child, 12 years old, verse 2, but the Lord Jesus continued behind in the temple among the doctors and elders and learned men of Israel to whom he proposed several questions of learning, and also gave them answers. Now, before we get too deep into chapter 21, here in the Arabic Infancy Gospel, turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2. We can read of the childhood of Yahshua, because I want you to see the similarities into what we're covering today. Beginning in verse 40, we read, the child, Jesus, grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Notice right here we're dealing with the same exact point in history. While the Arabic infancy gospel merely says the feast, Luke says the feast of the Passover, and this, of course, is extremely important. If you require further study on this section of Luke, simply download the ninth segment in my long-running series, and you'll be able to see. But notice also, it continues in verse 42. When he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. 
and Joseph and his mother knew not. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and the answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Question. And they understood not the saying in which they spoke unto him. Also notice that it concludes on the note, He, Jesus Christ, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them for about 18 years more. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, what did we just read? A good chunk of Luke chapter 2, but dealing with the childhood of Yahshua. And between verses 38 to the end of the chapter, what we covered right there in the canonized text of Luke, you will see, aligns with what we're being taught here. However, the author of Infancy One as a book wants you to understand it from Yahshua's perspective. In Luke, we are taught the perspective of Mary and Joseph. Remember, they go out, they come to Jerusalem, they observe the Passover, and then they go a day's journey before they even realize that young Yahshua was not with them. Then they go back another day's journey, find Yahshua in the temple, and he says he is about his father's business. Now you're going to see both accounts say that Mary and Joseph didn't fully understand what Yahshua was saying, and this fully makes sense to me because when we go to our parents and we say, you know what? Yahweh God is my father. Your earthly, fleshly father or stepfather oftentimes may not realize what it is that you are saying. So back here in Infancy 1, chapter 21, and verse 2. The Lord Jesus continued behind in the temple among the doctors and elders and learned men of Israel, to whom he proposed several questions of learning and also gave them answers. For he said unto them, Whose son is the Messiah? They answered, The son of David. Why then, said he, does he in the Spirit call him Lord? When he saith, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, till I have made thine enemies thy footstool. So notice this question is not within Luke, although by extension it is. But this question is not addressed because what we read about in St. Luke chapter 2 is from the perspective of Mary and Joseph. But what we are reading about here in chapter 21 and 22 is from the perspective of Yahshua who was left behind. And one of the questions that Jesus the Christ asked these quote-unquote learned men of Israel is, whose son is the Messiah? If the Messiah's son is the son of David, 
why does he in the Spirit call him Lord? That is, when he saith, The Lord saith to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, till I have made thine enemies thy footstool. So if you still have your finger within the book of Luke, turn over to chapter 20. And we can read in verse 41. He said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? It's a very straightforward question from Yahshua, and you know that Jesus the Christ was referred to as the Son of Man, or the Son of David, because there is no terminology in Hebrew or Greek denoting grandfather or great-grandfather or descendant of. So when we make this statement, Son of David, it is truly in a spiritual sense, but in Yahshua's case, it is in a physical sense. Because Yahshua truly was the great descendant of David. And so notice, we're not going to go into Psalms, but I want you to realize that so far what we've covered in the three chapters here in Infancy 2, all align with the canonized book of Luke. Why then, said he, does he in the Spirit call him Lord? The most simplistic answer for that, of course, I've already provided you. David called Yahshua, who was yet to come, Lord, because we have a heavenly Father, right? And one of the integral themes of the Bible is recognizing Yahshua's deity, understanding that God put himself in flesh form. That, in short, is the reason why David, in the book of Psalms, would make this quote, that Yahweh said unto my Lord, or Yahshua, Set on my right hand till I have made thine enemies thy footstool. Very important prophecy to understand because many people forget there is a difference between Yahshua at his first advent that we're dealing with now and his second advent. We are looking forward to the second advent of Yahshua and Jesus the Christ is sitting at the right hand of Yahweh God. Therefore, he will not return until his enemies are made his footstool. So how ironic is it that a majority of his enemies are out there saying, yeah, I'm Christian too, never even realizing that Yeshua this time, when he returns, will not come as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. Oh no, he's going to come in fire and fury and wrath. And that, my friend, is something we should look forward to. That is why David could call Yahshua my Lord before Yahshua was even born in the flesh. David knew Yahshua in the form and the visage of Yahweh God. But continuing on in verse 5. Then a certain principal rabbi asked him, Hast thou read books? This is a simple question proposed to Yahshua. Twelve years old in the temple of Jerusalem, after the Feast of Passover, what's the significance of Passover? Well, you know as well as I do that Yahshua was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that he would ultimately, about 18 years after this fact, be crucified during the Passover weekend, where? In Jerusalem. My friends, this is the very temple that Yahshua spent the last week of his life railing against the Pharisees, an organized religion within. 
the temple of Jerusalem, on Solomon's porch. Very important, because what this proves is that Yeshua's death was linked to his childhood and, of course, his birth. And everything comes full circle. So, a certain principal rabbi and or teacher of God's law asked Yeshua, Hast thou read books? Remember in the segment before this, they were trying to teach him the Hebrew alphabet, and Yeshua knew it better than his masters, the ones that were trying to educate him. Meaning, in short, that Yeshua was the living word. But I want you to pay close attention, because while Yeshua was the living word, verse 6 says, Jesus answered. He had read both books and the things which were contained in books, in the Bibliotech, within the canon, the scripture. Both books, what are those? Now, your average Christian will likely come in and say, well, that's the Old and the New Testament, but there was no New Testament, was there? Throughout all of Scripture, and most assuredly in the New Testament, you will see that there is a differentiation between the Law and the Prophets, because those are the two books. Yeshua would say, think not that I am come to do away with the Law, nor the Prophets. Two books, the Pentateuch and the Minor and Major Prophets. Therefore, Yeshua said he had read both books and the things that were contained in books, period. What books were those? Well, I assure you they were not Charlie Brown. I assure you they were not Harlequin romances, dear friends. They were the Word of God, which was the only books in existence at the time of Yeshua. And Yeshua's claim to this rabbi was he was familiar with all those books, the Law and the Prophets, because... It was the Pharisees in the temple of Jerusalem and these quote-unquote rabbis who stood behind the same law, right? But they were not familiar with it. Yahshua would come and say, you err. It is written. So, Yahshua did read books as he walked within the flesh. And also notice that he was 12 years old when he made this statement. Of course he read books. How many 12-year-olds do you know that have read the entire Old Testament? Fair question, is it not? Because I assure you, you will find hardly any. But Yahshua did. Being the living word, he knew the written word. Very important. One is spiritually discerned, and one is theologically discerned. And that is where many of us fail. We don't understand the Spirit because we do not walk within the Spirit. Therefore, we look at the Scripture like a theological letter of antiquity. But we must look at it from the Spirit. Yahshua was the Spirit, the living Word. Therefore, we must understand that he understood the law better than any man who tried to educate him. Verse 7 says, And he, Yahshua, explained to them the books of the law and the precepts and the statutes and the mysteries which are contained in the books of the prophets, things which the mind of no creature should reach. So therefore, what you must understand about this is Yahshua relayed everything that they didn't understand about the Word of God. Explain to them what the precepts of the law are meant to fulfill and what they were to do. He explained to them the books of the law, right? That's the Pentateuch. And not only did he explain the books of the Mosaic law, but he told of the precepts, the statutes, and more importantly, pay close attention to the mysteries which are contained in the books of the prophets. 
What can we deduct from that? Well, there are mysteries within the books of the prophets, and therefore that is why I'm contemplating even teaching Zechariah or Habakkuk when we conclude with this particular series. Because there are many more quote-unquote dark sayings within the minor prophets than there are to be found within the New Testament. What I'm saying in this, naturally, is that the New Testament is clear-cut. It's straightforward. If we learn that Yeshua was in the Temple of Jerusalem, and he was 12 years old, that is codified, that is fact, that is what we must realize. That is what you must bank your salvation upon. But when we read here, towards the conclusion of Infancy 1, and we see that it aligns, word for word, almost identical, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2 and 20, this should give you cause to accept at least what it is we're covering this Wednesday evening. Notice that verse 7 says that Yahshua explained to the wise learned elders of Israel things which the mind of no creature could reach. No matter how well educated we believe we are, no matter how far along we are within our walk, within the word, because it truly is alive and we can spend our entire life studying it and never master it, we will never know more than Yahshua because he is the living word. He is able to explain all of those things that the rabbis, the preachers, and me, myself included, cannot. That is, the mysteries of the words of the prophets. The mysteries. We can come out and give you an educated guess. We can tell you, hey, Ezekiel discusses the Israelites in dysphoria. We could tell you the end of Malachi discusses God robbers. But Yeshua understood it because he was it incarnated. But enough on that. Verse 8. Then said that rabbi, I never have yet seen or heard of such knowledge. What do you think that boy will be? Imperative question. What do you think that boy will be in 18 years when he grows up? Now, even though this rabbi made this statement and said, What manner of man do you think Jesus the Christ will be? They fully did not understand. And I want you to take that from this. And Luke. When Yeshua was in the temple, they were amazed at his wisdom. And for all intents and purposes, likely said, You know what? He's a wise child, has wisdom far beyond his years, but none of them turned right around. Even while Yahshua said, what's written in the law of the Psalms? Why did David say that the coming Messiah was his Lord and his God? None of them pieced it together. None of them came out and said, you know what, in 18 years, this is going to be the lamb slain for all of Israel. None of them said, while Yahshua was 12 years old, surely this is the king of Israel. No, rather they said, this is a smart child, and likely perceived Yahshua as a threat. So, the rabbi says, I've never seen or heard of such knowledge. But the rabbi does not come in and say, surely this is the son of God. And he also asks, what do you think this boy will be? So I ask you, this Wednesday evening, if you believe that Yahshua grew up to be that lamb slain over the Passover weekend, and through his sacrifice we have grace and mercy, then what do you think that boy, or Messiah, or Redeemer of all Israel will be at the second advent? At the second advent, at his return. Do you believe he will come back and embrace his enemies? 
Do you believe it will come back and say, you know what? I'm going to throw out all of those that lived according to my word, that died and were crucified proverbially in this world, went through much tribulation. You think Yeshua's going to cast them aside and go for the wicked? I bring that up, of course, because Judeo-Christians, if they had their way, they would want you to believe that Yeshua would even forgive the son of perdition who sentenced to perish. Satan will never be forgiven, nor will his children, and Yeshua taught no different. Remember that. So, the question is, what do you think that Messiah will be? And what do you think he'll be at his second advent? Fair enough question. Now, moving on to a new manuscript here in chapter 21, we read in verse 9. When a certain astronomer who was present asked Yahweh Yahshua whether he had studied astronomy, Yahweh Yahshua replied and told him the number of the spheres and heavenly bodies, as also their triangular, square, and sextile aspect, their progressive and retrograde motion, their size and several prognostications, and other things which the reason of man has never discovered. That's it for this narrative. Verse 9 and 10. An astronomer, not an astrologer, and I want to establish that in your mind, astronomy is allowed within the scripture. In fact, it's partially commanded. But astrology is forbidden. That is akin to sorcery. And what is the difference, you may ask? Well, astronomy is the study of the stars. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that is commanded because the stars, the moon, and the sun were given us to bank our time, our weeks, and our days upon so that Yahweh God would give us a calendar. Therefore, what is the study of the stars but astronomy? But astrology is a man who wants to come in and tell you, well, based on the stars, I'm going to read you your horoscope or you're the sign of Gemini or Libra. That, my friend, is forbidden. And in order to really establish that, turn with me to the Old Testament, Book of Job. I really love the Book of Job because it's one of those books in the canon that is likely the oldest in all of canon. But there is dark sayings within the Book of Job, right? At the beginning of Job chapter 9, we read in verse 1, Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He is wise in his own heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and hath prospered. Job asks you, who's kicked against Yahweh God and prospered in life? The obvious answer, of course, is nobody. Any man who comes and attempts to throw down Yahshua will be thrown down himself before he leaves this earth. That's something you can really truly believe in. But pay close attention to Job's words beginning in verse 5. This is the acts of God. This is Yahweh's twelvefold power. He says, Which removeth the mountains, and they know not, which overturneth them in his anger. Which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble which commandeth the sun, and it rises not, and sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. 
Do you understand the difference? Indeed, I could take you numerous other places, but I want to establish in your mind that there is a difference between an astronomer and an astrologer. Big difference. Astronomy is mentioned in scripture. It's replete with examples. Astrology is forbidden and is punishable by death. Okay? So this astronomer that was found within the temple of Jerusalem was not out of place. This would have been his forte and his major of study. Understand that? Some studied the law, some studied the prophets, and others studied the stars. Thank you for listening to the Covenant People's Ministry broadcast. If you have enjoyed hearing the message of the gospel and would like to be a part of our fellowship, or receive quarterly newsletters where you can order Pastor Visser's CD sermons, be sure to write to us at CPM Post Office Box 256, Brooks, Georgia 30205. You can also visit us on the web at covenantpeoplesministry.net where our extensive audio section features numerous broadcasts or you can easily listen to Pastor Visser by Godcast through your mobile audio device. Our sermons and videos are made possible by your tithes and offerings. If you wish to support this ministry, make checks or money orders payable to Covenant People's Ministry. Your donations help us to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel, wherever they may be found. Remember that Jesus Christ is our all, and is in all that have been renewed in His Holy Spirit. So we hope that you will allow Him to lead your life and help to build His church, so that when He returns, you will find faith upon this earth. We urge you to be a living example of Christian faith and apply his words to your lives. It has been a pleasure to have you with us, and now we will return to Pastor Visser's Bible study message. Continuing on in verse 11. There was also among them a philosopher, well-skilled in physic and natural philosophy, who asked the Lord Jesus whether he had ever studied a physic or physics. Yeshua, have you ever studied physics? Now, we already know he knew the entire alphabet before he was 12. We know from what we studied this Wednesday evening that Yeshua knew the books, the law, and the prophets at 12 years old. We know also that Yeshua was smarter than astronomers. Could it stand to reason that Yeshua placed those stars where they belong? <laughs> well, that's a side note. Remember that this philosopher was well-skilled in natural philosophy, and he asked Yahweh Yahshua whether he had ever studied physics. Verse 12 says, He replied and explained to him physics and metaphysics. You understand that? Yahshua came and not only explained physics, which was this man's forte, but metaphysics, which is a whole separate study in and of itself. Verse 13 says, Also those things which were above and below the power of nature, the power of nature. I want to digress right here and explain to you that Yahweh is supernatural. Everything that transpires down here as we live that is natural, the natural order of things, Yahweh has his fingerprint behind it. But the devil deals in those things that are superficial or unnatural. So it stands to reason that Yahshua would be able to explain the things that were above and below the power of all nature because he was the creator, right? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. We know that nothing was created outside of Yahshua. And the powers also of the body, its humors, 
and their effects. Also the number of its members and bones, veins, arteries, and nerves. The several constitutions of body, hot and dry, cold and moist, and the tendencies of them. How the soul operated upon the body. Now this is about halfway through the list of what Yahshua is teaching this man who was well studied in philosophy, the study of the natural order. But notice in verse 17 we're told that Yahshua explained to him how the soul or ruach operated upon the body or within the body. Understand that the word soul as ruach is translated as breath a majority of the time. When you read breath of life, that is ruach or the breath of God, the soul of God. Perhaps this explains why Yahweh breathed within Adam and Adam became a living soul. Only Adam and his progeny and descendants possess a soul. So verse 17 confirms so much more than the fact that Yahshua was well educated and knew more than a mere natural man. But it proves also that he only came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, those who possess a soul. But what else did he explain? Verse 18 says, What its various sensations and faculties were, the faculty of speaking, anger, desire, and lastly, the manner of its composition and dissolution, and other things which the understanding of no creature had ever reached. So, for emphasis, understand that no matter what they came to ask Yahshua, he knew better than he who asked it. They asked him a question about the natural order. And Yahshua explains the natural order. Everything that is natural and what is listed within the natural order, in addition to every function of our body, which is flesh, is the soul. The soul is not spiritual in this allegory. The soul belongs to the Israelites. Only they were granted entrance into the temple of Jerusalem. So we proved two things already. Yahshua was an Israelite, the king of all Israel, and he truly did come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Could it be because they and they alone are they that possess the rock or the actual breath of God? I think so. Those that worship Yahweh God must worship him in spirit and truth. And both of those Yahshua is. So the last thing Yahshua teaches in verse 20 is the manner of its composition. What the human body is comprised of and how it decomposes post-mortem. Yahshua knew all these things and he was 12 years old. Consider the irony. No man disputed him. Unlike in today's society, if you have a gifted 12-year-old and you send him to public school and he knows more than his teachers, which is a good probability, they're going to want to dope him up. They're going to want to put him in special ed because they perceive him as a threat. And while those men and women within the temple of Jerusalem likely perceived Yahshua as a threat, they could not come against him because he knew the word better than they. If they were to go back into the Pentateuch, the law, or the prophets, for example... Job or Isaiah, Jeremiah, and read those words, they would understand coming out the gate that Yahshua was not wrong. So stand behind that living word. What happens to the philosopher? Verse 21 says, Then that philosopher arose and worshipped Yahweh Yahshua and said, 
O Lord Jesus, from henceforth, I will be thy disciple and servant. What can we learn from this? Well, if you're able to actually debate a better game, you can convert the masses. This philosopher says, I will be your disciple. And this child was 12 years old to whom he said it. Notice, the others did not say that. The astronomer did not. The rabbi did not say that. But the philosopher arose and worshipped God. Why? His study is the natural order of things. And Jesus Christ is supernatural. Once again, verse 22. While they were discoursing on these and such like things, the Lady St. Mary came in, having been three days walking about with Joseph, seeking for him. Do you see how that aligns again with Luke chapter 2? Because it was Mary and Joseph that went a day's journey. They had to go a day's journey back, and likely the temple of Jerusalem would have been the last place they looked. So they probably spent a half a day looking for Yahshua. And what we're learning here in verse 22 is this is where they re-enter the picture. We already covered it at the beginning of tonight's study. This is where they come back. And Yahshua says, I am about my father's business. Verse 23. And when she saw him sitting among the doctors and in his turn proposing questions to them and giving answers, she said to him, My son, why hast thou done thus by us? Behold. I and thy father have been at much pains in seeking thee. You should be able to already see what Yahshua is going to respond. Notice also she says the same thing in Luke. Mary says, why are you here within the temple while me and your stepfather are looking for you? For almost three days we haven't known where you are. Pay close attention to Yahshua's response. Verse 24, he replied, Why did ye seek me? Did ye not know that I ought to be employed in my father's house? What is Yahshua saying there? But Joseph was not his father. The Yahweh God was. In the canonized version of Luke, we learn that Yahshua said he must be about his father's business. His father's business, or in his father's employ. Therefore, it should have been common sense, especially in light of all the things that both Joseph and Mary went through. A visitation and salutation from angels, Gabriel appearing to them both, the shepherds in the field coming and saying, we have seen a star. All of that should have led up to the fact that Mary understood who Yahshua was, right? But yet Mary fully did not understand. And I preached this before. Yahshua says, I ought to be employed in my father's house. And truly he was. Verse 25. But they understood not the words which he said unto them, identical to Luke. Neither Joseph and Mary understood that Yahshua was saying, Yahweh's my God, not Joseph. And I'm about my father's business, not carpentry, but preaching. Verse 26. Then the doctors asked Mary whether this was her son. And when she said he was, they said, Oh, happy Mary. Who hast born such a son? Then he returned with them to Nazareth and obeyed them in all things. And his mother kept all these things in her mind. And Yahweh Yahshua grew in stature and wisdom and favor with both God and man. Turn with me back very quickly to Luke chapter 2. And I want to show you how similar 
the conclusion of the Syriac Infancy Gospel is to what we consider canon. We learn in St. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 51. Again, he went down with them and came to Nazareth, that is, from Jerusalem, and was subject unto them. But his mother, that is Mary, kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in both wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now what we learn here in Infancy 1, chapter 21? Then he returned with them to Nazareth and obeyed them in all things. And his mother kept all these things in her mind. And the Lord Jesus grew in stature and wisdom and favor with God and man. So I asked you, what happened? We understand these two accounts are identical. But what happened? If both Luke chapter 2 and Infancy 1 as a book tell us that he returns to Nazareth, he studies the law for an upwards of another 18 years. And Mary kept all these things within her heart to protect her child. And the Lord Jesus grew in stature and wisdom with favor of both God and man. Why would it be that 18 years later, if Yahshua continued to grow in favor with God and man, the same Israelite men, women, and children, and of course the Jewish terror, were screaming out, crucify him, crucify him. Where did all the favor go? How is it that Yahshua, being 12 years old, speaking the word of God, grew in favor because he was but a youth? But yet when a 33-year-old comes and corrects the same classes of men and women in the same exact temple, it ultimately leads up to them bearing false witness and putting him to death. Where did the favor go? Favor with man is fleeting. That's the answer. Favor with God does not disannul. So, while Yahshua was accepted by both God and man, for the next 18 years of his teenage years growing up and into adulthood, the only favor or grace or mercy that stood when he gave up the ghost was not the favor of man, but the favor of Yahweh God. A very valuable lesson for us to learn. Seek God first and everything else will be added unto you. Right? So we have seven more verses and one more chapter. And then we're finally concluded with the entire Arabic infancy gospel. This deals with Yahshua concealing his miracles, which alludes to the fact of why Mary kept all these things within her heart. Common sense dictates a woman will protect her child. And the most surefire way of protecting your child is not drawing light to the fact that he is different than the rest of the world. Right? If we were to send our kids to public school and say, our child could do miracles, they would dope them up, they would probably donate them to science, they would cut them into a million pieces as if he were an alien. That is one of the reasons, in my opinion, Mary kept all of these miracles to herself. But what we learn here in chapter 22 is very important for aspiring preachers. This is something I've done in my life and something you may likely have to do yourself if you desire the office of the priesthood. Continuing on in chapter 22, verse 1. Now from this time, Jesus began to conceal his miracles and secret works. From 12 years till 30, he concealed his works. 
Why would the author say that? Because he wants you to understand that he did not stop doing miracles. They weren't public from that point on. Why? To protect them, obviously. So he could reappear at baptism. And he could reappear to the same class of people or their descendants and correct them in the word. Now we should be grateful if we're chastised, if we're corrected by the word of God. If we believe erroneously and the living word comes and chastises us, be grateful. From this time, from the age of 12 up to 30, Yahshua concealed his miracles and secret works. That means that all of Yahshua's works between this time were secret. Why is this important? Because it explains why none of those miracles are transcribed in our four Gospels. We don't get this in the canonized. We get it here. And we learn. If they were secret works, and if they were concealed from the masses, then obviously it stands to reason the Bible would be suspiciously silent between chapter 2 and chapter 3 in Luke. Luke, and only Luke, explains Joshua's childhood. The rest of them don't. It's all concealed for a reason and for the glory of God. Perhaps one of the most obvious is so we in this latter era can preach these books and you can learn, at least from Yahshua's perspective, what he dealt with. Mary and Joseph wouldn't have known this unless, that is, Yahshua relayed it when they returned to Nazareth. But they wouldn't know what Yahshua said to the astrologer, to the philosopher, to the doctors or the high priest. Only Yahshua would know that. So in my estimation, the final two chapters of this entire book are the most legit of what we've covered. Verse 2 in chapter 22. And Yeshua gave himself to the study of the law till he arrived to the end of his 30th year. And my suggestion to you is do the same. For those of you who are familiar with my preaching, you might know that I attempted preaching in 95, 96, and actually did. And while only three of these very early sermons exist, only one is promoted on my site. And when it all boils down to it, even though I tried preaching, I failed miserably in the early 90s. And so I had to wait until 2003 when I turned 30 years old in order to fully go full bore and start preaching. Now this, of course, is a personal choice. This is not a prerequisite to enter into the priesthood. But it is a good idea. Why? If Yahshua did it, why wouldn't we? And it's right here, right? He gave himself to the study of the law until he was 30 years old and even attempted to preach. So, my advice is do the same thing. Don't preach until you're 30 years old because logically you won't even be mentally equipped to preach until you're 30 years old. And of course, if you get married and have children, that adds to your validity as a preacher. But my opinion is, don't attempt to preach full scale until you're 30 years old. Yahshua did the same exact thing. Verse 3. At which time the father publicly owned him at Jordan. The father, not Joseph, not the stepfather. Yahweh God. And Yahweh God publicly spoke out, did he not? 
That's why verse 3 says, At which time the Father, who is Yahweh, publicly owned him at the river Jordan, sending down his voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. Jesus the Christ. Notice Yahweh did not say this of our adversary, Satan. And Satan is considered a son of God. Satan is a son of God, but Yahweh God is not well pleased with Satan. Very important point here. So turn with me to the gospel according to Matthew. And in Matthew, in chapter 3, we read, beginning in verse 13, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John, to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And John suffered him, meaning John baptized him. Verse 16, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, Pay close attention, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So, verse 3 of the final chapter in the Arabic Infancy Gospel says, At what time the Father publicly owned him at Jordan? That's when Yahweh God spoke from heaven. That's when the entire world realized that Jesus the Christ was the Son of God, at least the Israelites, who were there at the River Jordan, because a voice came from heaven, or the abode of God, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Again, we see that the Syriac Infancy Gospel aligns with the Gospel of Luke, the Book of Job, and now the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Also notice verse 4, the Holy Ghost being also present in the form of a dove. Just like we read about in Matthew, a spirit like a dove ascending upon Yahshua. Spirit like a dove. I've done a study on that. What is a dove but an emblem of peace? And this is why Yahweh would send the Spirit, His Holy Spirit, to light or land upon Yahshua. And Yahweh God would say, this is my beloved son. I'm very pleased within him because he baptized. He was obedient even unto death. So, the Holy Spirit is attributed to the form of a dove in scripture. Very important. Perhaps it sheds light on why it is Noah released a dove. <laughs> Perhaps that's a study for another day. Verse 5. This is he whom we worship with all reverence. Because he gave us our life and being and brought us from our mother's womb. This is the benediction or conclusion. Okay? We're finally winding down the Syriac Infancy Gospel. And the author wants you to understand that everything we've discussed from chapter 1 to chapter 22 is all pertaining to this. And this is he whom we worship, Jesus the Christ. And we worship Yahshua with all reverence because he gave us our life and our being, a polite way of saying soul, and brought us from our mother's womb. Even that is a miracle, dear friends. Not dying in childbirth, but 
how many of us really attribute that to a miracle? How many of us wake up every day and say, thank you, Yahweh God, for this day that you've given me, another day to do thy will? Well, probably those of us that do, don't do so enough. Verse 6. Who, for our sakes, took a human body and hath redeemed us, so that he might embrace us with everlasting mercy and show his free, large, bountiful grace and goodness to us. Notice the usage of three words here that all denote the same exact thing. Mercy, grace, goodness. They're all the same thing. A perfect trinity within Yahshua. He was all of those things. He was the mercy of Yahweh in the Old Testament. He was the grace of Yahshua in the New Testament. And ultimately, he will be the goodness to his bride, Israel, within the coming kingdom. Turn with me to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in the New Testament. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 8. This is the reason for Paul's appeal in this second letter. Therefore, it's very important. Meaning the Corinthians missed something in the first, and he wants to justify it and explain it here. He says in verse 8, Paul, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. Those are the Corinthians. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So, we already know now that the Syriac infancy gospel now aligns with the latter epistles of Paul. Because here we learn in verse 6, the second to the final verse in the entire book. Who, for our sakes, took a human body and hath redeemed us so that he might so embrace us with everlasting mercy and show his free, large, bountiful goodness to us. So, in infancy we learn that Jesus Christ, for our sakes, took a human body and hath redeemed us. That was the purpose Yahshua, who is spirit in the form of Yahweh, had to put on flesh. And we learn here, that we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that because he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might be rich. Almost identical. Final verse in this entire study. Verse 7 of chapter 22. To him, Jesus to Christ, Yahweh Yahshua, be glory and praise and power and dominion from henceforth and forevermore. Amen. Now, you don't need me to go into the rest of the New Testament to prove to you that most of the epistles end on that note. So, take your pick as to which this aligns with. And finally, there's one pilcrow and a note from the scribe who compiled this book. This is not part of the text, but this is a reference note for you. It says... The end of the whole gospel of the infancy by the assistance of the supreme God according to what we found in the original. What is the original? We've already proven that infancy too as a book. And perhaps I may cover that again. But I've definitely covered it in 2012. And again, it's attributed to Thomas. 
So what the author or the scribe wants you to understand is that he has expanded upon the book of infancy too. And this is why in the lost books of the Bible, infancy too as a book appears after the Syriac infancy gospel. While infancy too as a book is not Syriac at its core root, what we are taught in both books align here. And this is why the end of the whole gospel of the infancy by the assistance of the Supreme God, according to what we found in the original, meaning like Luke did for Matthew, Mark, and John, so also this scribe did for infancy too, for his book that latter became known as infancy one. And so I truly pray that those of you who have been touched by these studies, this next three weeks especially, might be able to tithe if you are able to, the address here will be given momentarily, because this month of April 2016, it is more imperative than ever before. So if you are able to support this ministry, please do so. And if you're not, no problems, dear kinsfolk. I hope that this study, 14 parts, has edified you and taught you a few things about the childhood of our Redeemer that perhaps you did not know before. And so, until next time, this is Pastor Visser from Brooks, Georgia, and the Covenant People's Church, this Wednesday evening, wishing you and yours great studies. War for Christ. Amen. Covenant People's Ministry! Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you have enjoyed studying with us. Remember the words that Christ has given. That wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We hope that you will gather together with us at the online ministry's website, which is covenantpeoplesministry.com, and share your Christian testimonies or ask questions and enjoy biblical fellowship. You can also order CDs of Pastor Visser's Bible Studies and enjoy many other Christian resources through the church's website or write to Covenant People's Ministry, Post Office Box 256, Brooks, Georgia, 30205. We thank you for your prayers and offerings and pray that all of you have been touched by these messages and continue to spread the word of the gospel with your friends and family. Thanks again and may the love of Christ abide in you and yours forever and ever. Amen.